have you guys seen block-based interfaces like Notion or yes. WordPress Gutenberg are kind of the, the really big popular ones? You're talking to a Notion fan and, and a WordPress user here, so we're, <laughs> we're all over it. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Okay. You're on, you're on board. So uh, one of our goals is, you know, when you type slash or in, in WordPress, right, you have your pick a list of blocks and it's a kind of limited list of blocks, right? It's whatever the Notion engineers and the WordPress engineers have the bandwidth to build themselves. And there's all these other components available in NPM, right? If you search for React components on NPM, it's thousands and thousands. But you can't, as an end user, as someone who's not a programmer, you can't put one of those components into your blog post because you don't have the ability to, you don't know code. But what if we could have blocks that were interoperable between platforms? Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. And I am joined, as I often am, by my wonderful co-host, Siora. Hi, Siora. Hi. It's good to see you. And we have a great guest today with us, Maggie Appleton. Maggie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Maggie, I am a former journalist who now works mostly in the world of software, writing about it, podcasting about it, being really tolerable at trying to code anything. <laughs> How did you get into this world of software? And to what degree do you balance that with sort of writing and opinion and essays? Yeah, so um, I guess I've been techie, let's say, in quotations, my whole life. I was the kind of kid that got into HTML at 12. I mean, I was of the millennial generation where we kind of had the internet come into our lives at maybe 13 or so. And so I've always played with computers and and just been very curious about learning new software. But I'm not necessarily a developer. So I'm, I'm very much a designer. I develop tangentially or I call myself like a really terrible developer. I do it as needed. <laughs> same, same. But yeah, I mostly came in through design, I'll say. <laughs> I came in through visual design, web design, and then I do front-end engineering only uh, in order to build websites that look cool and are fancy and have animations. Like I'm mostly interested in it from a interaction design perspective. Very cool. I have some questions. I like went on to your website and I like read through your bio, which was very well written, by <laughs> the way. It's interesting to hear you kind of talk about like getting being interested in tech like since you were younger. Tell us about what it was like entering the tech industry for the first time. Because from what I gather, you have a background in anthropology first, but somehow you made your way into the tech industry. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yes, I, I definitely have a strange path. I, well, I feel like most <laughs> people in tech have a yeah. strange path into this place. Um, so I studied, yes, cultural anthropology for my undergraduate degree uh, at like a liberal arts school. Um, but I also uh, specialized in digital anthropology, which was kind of a sub-discipline of it. So looking at how digital objects and digital mediums change our cultural practices or our cultural beliefs about the world. Even though I studied anthropology, I was always interested in kind of the tech side of it. And then yeah. when I graduated with a cultural anthropology degree, <laughs> uh, I had very few job prospects other than my like continuing my waitressing and barista career from university. But I had been building websites on the side since like middle school, high school. And kind of realized like, oh, people will pay me to like design websites for them. Um, so yeah, just immediately out of school, went into freelancing and web design. 
Uh, and, and then out of necessity had to learn, you know, CSS and was like, what's JavaScript? <laughs> had to learn what that was. Um, so I think my entire career ended up, I mean, I ended up in tech quite quickly, but still, even to this day, I'm always looking for the anthropological lens on how it all works. Like, that's really what fascinates me is like, how does our, our whole like front end software world have just like cultural belief systems? Like, what is it that people are implicitly uh, assuming about certain situations, what are the different metaphors people are using to talk and understand different situations. I'm really interested in kind of like, yeah, the cultural belief system that lies underneath all of programming and specifically front-end programming. That's very smart sounding. The metaphors we web by, uh, I was I was checking that out in anticipation of this. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about that was the idea that we're still stuck in many ways on the web in this sort of paper mindset, this print mindset, and this office mindset. I've been trying to work on a piece about what cities and offices could or should look like in the future now that the pandemic has shown us we can clearly be just as productive remote. And as a city person who recently moved to the or like a rural area, like what, you know, that potential that opens up. And it's amazing to go back and look at some of the old software design systems and how they were really just trying to recreate like an office desk, you know, here's a file folder, here's a copy machine, you know, like here's your drawing tablet, like everything is just taken from like Xerox Park, the actual place, as opposed to like, you know, the U- the UX UI, the GUI. I guess I'd be curious, yeah, to hear a little bit about like what you see out there that you think is exciting, you know, like people who might be pushing the boundaries a little bit there. Or, you know, new ideas or metaphors that get you interested in, in sort of pushing in a certain direction. Yeah, I love this topic of like, I guess, metaphors of interface design is kind of one of my like pet interests or like uh, obsessions, something to that effect, <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially of the web, because the web's so interesting. Like, how do you conceive of this thing that is like has so many dimensions and aspects and especially being part of the front end programming world, we kind of know too much about it. Like, There's so much detail we know about browser APIs or just like frameworks, like there's too much for one human mind to kind of conceive of it all at once. So we have all these various metaphorical lenses we apply to it in different situations to help us understand the aspects we need in that moment. In terms of interface wise, like the kind of interfaces I'm seeing that get me excited. And I and I guess I focus more on, on like web ones, but it really does apply to any software at this point. You know, the line between native mm-hmm. app and web app obviously gets very fuzzy. I'm really interested in the spatial interface space. So like you mentioned, Ben, of course, we came from this world of very literal physical metaphors that we recreate in the screen. And we still do that to an extent, right? Like every like drop down menu or carousel. We're still using the idea of paper. I mean, obviously, Google's material design has been a huge influence there that we have this idea of like stacks of paper is kind of what our current web looks like, right? You have like slide overs, and everything has like subtle shadows. So it just kind of looks like a stack of cards that are all moving in various ways. But I'm really interested in this space where people are now using more open canvases, like, you know, the, the Figma approach. Those those are really interesting. And then you kind of get into like different interactions of how you're allowed to move around that space, not necessarily 3D, but just bringing in more than like the linear page, which is like the historical legacy that we're kind of not struggling against, but also enmeshed in. It's very hard to break out of it that we're very used to opening a web page and we call it a document, right? It's an HTML document. So we expect it to start with linear text on the left that goes to the right and then progresses down in a straight line versus being something that maybe goes in all directions or comes towards us or away from us or have that having that be part of the dimensions of the page. I think about this a lot too. As someone who's kind of on the front and side of things occasionally, 
And I also have a lot of friends and family who aren't in tech and I just happen to be the person who is like the tech support, right? Like, how do you work this app? How do you, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find the topic of like how to make design of a website or an app intuitive while also allowing yourself as a designer or as an engineer to be like as creative as possible. There's like a balance between the two because sometimes you'll see a website that's like very visually stunning, but you hand the website or the app to a regular non-tech person and they have no idea how to use it. So I'm wondering like, as far as like, you have a very creative style, you have a very unique style. So how do you balance like having your um, creative freedom with also, I know you've had experience with like interactive design and things like that. How do you Mm -hmm. make like something as usable as possible, depending on like who your audience or like user base is? while also still maintaining that balance between like, you know, being creative and being able to like express yourself with your design. That's something I struggle with sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like you'll see things that are so cool, but it's like, can people use this? So yeah, I, I think that's kind of a big question, but like, if you have anything to say about that, I would love to hear your thoughts. Sure. I, that is definitely like a very large question, especially in the, in the web design world. Um, yeah. Per- personally, I, I almost, so I, I'm also, uh, for context of people who don't know, I've been an illustrator in the tech world for a lot of years. So I kind of illustrate explanations of how programming concepts work. So I'm literally just drawing you know, pictures on an iPad and then putting PNGs on the web. You know, So it's not necessarily like a web native <laughs> um, technology. And that I kind of think of as maybe where I'm a bit more free and there aren't as many rules because I'm, I'm drawing an illustration you know it's a lot more of like a, a visual expression of, of creative ideas and I put that in a very very different category of work to when I'm designing like a UI like you know a form or a drop down menu and there I don't uh, I don't know if I really put creative like thought into that in the same way and not to say that you can't like we've all seen the crazy wonderful experiments people do with like weird slider interactions you know or, or strange buttons and I think those are important to play with in, you know, context, like I think of CodePen as a wonderful creative community playing with that stuff in a sandboxed way where they're just doing it to like push the medium of the web. But I think it is important to keep that very different to like usable web apps that need to be, you know, accessible for everyone and and responsive and, you know, correct color contrast. And like the amount of responsibility we have when building interfaces, I think always has to take precedence over creative expression or creative play and exploration which is the sort of like, I don't know, like the boring adult answer, right? But like, <laughs> um, right. It's, it's kind of true, you know, it's it's like uh, when someone's designing roads, they can't like get too creative with it, you know? Right. I hear what you're saying. And I do feel like, yeah, when I see interesting and creative web design, it's often in the context more of art or experimentation where someone is saying, this was my intention here. Because, yeah, I think even now we're taking more and more stock of everything from you know, the visual design and color scheme to all the different elements of accessibility. Like you said, it's becoming more and more almost rigid in the sense of like, we really need to build in all of these things so that everyone, you know, has equal access to this web content as opposed to the wild days of the nineties or, you know, even some of the stuff with responsive web design that happened where people were clearly just getting experimental. Yeah. Um, Sior and I have discussed this. We're, we're about a few, a few years apart in age and just that (laughs) kids going into college, yes, programs now sometimes struggle with the metaphors of file and folder and stuff like that, because they come from a world of just using smartphones and tablets. Why does it have to be organized like that? They've never been in an office. Like these metaphors aren't necessarily useful to them and they're not intuitive. And I had (laughs) one of those like humiliating experiences as a parent the other day where my kids 
had taken my zoom and they had like, you know, changed the name and put all kinds of emojis on there. And I had to do like a work meeting and I was like, how do I get rid of this stuff? And they just like, were like, here, just do that. You know, they just like went into the <laughs> settings and just changed everything for me. And I was like, thank God they were here to do that. You know, and for them, yeah, everything on mobile is now intuitive. You know, they can navigate around zoom or Roblox with ease and, and I can't. Yeah. I think I was actually interested in hearing like your perspective on this too, because one of the first interactions I ever had with you, I don't even know if you considered it an interaction, but the first time I like ran into you was when I went to Women of React. It's a conference that happens mm -hmm. annually, I think. This was like in 2020 and I like was super new to tech. I was still like in my learning phase and you gave a talk that was called Drawing the Invisible. And I thought it was really impressive because you talked about like creating metaphors that explain um, and help people visualize abstract coding concepts. And I thought that was so fascinating, especially as someone who was like learning and trying to like understand these abstract coding concepts. But I think Ben brings up a very valid point when it comes to like illustrating things, especially for like educational purposes or like usability purposes, whatever the case may be, that it's sometimes hard to find a metaphor that like fits that a lot of people will understand because depending on where you're from, what language you speak, your gener what generation you were born in, like that changes constantly. Like we had a podcast episode where we literally talked about how like newer generations, like the generation of people coming out of university now with CS degrees may not understand the whole folder file structure that well because they grew up with being able to just search from anywhere on your computer or phone. So how do you balance this as like a person who creates very intuitive designs and metaphors and does these visual like essays is it something that you kind of like built with like this is what I wish I would have had when I was learning or do you like how do you you know find that balance between like creating things that's usable for everyone understandable for everyone or as many people as possible because I think mm -hmm. about that a lot and I think that's like hard to execute especially when you're like in the education space or like in the space where you're trying to build something that's usable for as many people as possible yes um that's a very good question um <laughs> and one I guess I've spent a lot of time thinking about yeah and it's it's funny it has a strange parallel to to user research for for like products right when we go to build a product we make sure we like interview users we we research our customer base we think about what their needs are what they currently have what they currently know uh, and when I go to make an, an explanation of a, of a certain like uh, programming topic or framework or something, uh, you know, I just go on to the, the community Reddit. I search for it on Twitter. Oh. What I go and look for is the specific language they're using to talk about it because metaphors are always baked into language. Um, this is kind of a principle that comes from like cognitive, the cognitive science world that most of the way that we form and pass our metaphors around in society is through our languages, through the words we use, uh, like everything we say almost always has like a metaphorical background to it or like a hidden metaphor we're not really seeing there's all kinds of turns of phrase or just the way we phrase things are always baked into metaphor so yeah so most of the time it's like when people say oh you come up with metaphors that really make sense well I think the reason they sometimes work is what I've done is I've looked at the way people have spoken about that technology on forums and in the documentation obviously like the docs are always a really great place to be like okay this is what everyone's reading so they all have the same mental model built from these from the words in these docs and use that to be able to create illustrations and visuals based on those uh, metaphors that were already there that people were already yeah. using and passing around that makes so much sense do you, th do you look at that as doing not not to tie it all back but this is, sounds like cultural anthropology right you go into a community yes. <laughs> you see what language they use to tell their own you know narratives about how they live or work or play and then if you can mirror that language back to them they have this sort of intuitive understanding of it right 
Yes. Yeah. Very much from that. I mean, it was, I think it took me a while to connect the dots. Like I had kind of studied all this stuff about ethnography is what we call in anthropology where you go and sort of live among communities and, and just watch them essentially. And like as little as creepy way as you can for years and take really <laughs> detailed notes it does come off as creepy and then I uh, like halfway through my career I started learning more about UX research and UX researchers and and kind of UX in general and I just kept having this feeling of like it just seems like they're anthropologists with a different label like all the things they're talking about like all the things anthropologists do and then I found out there is like a strong pipeline from anthropology degrees to UX research um there wasn't when I graduated but people graduating now, they are definitely hiring anthropologists to come do UX. Very that cool. makes a lot of sense. I actually was going to ask like how your background in anthropology has like impacted your career. But I think based off of the question, the question you <laughs> answered already, that's like very clear. That's so cool. I, I love when like um, I think sometimes people imagine that like the only way to be successful or not be successful, like. When people think about like getting started in design or in tech in general, it's like I have to have a graphic design background or I have to have a background in like CS or whatever. But there are so many ways that like different things that seem like they're totally unrelated can actually tie back to the work we do in tech in a really yeah. like meaningful way that can impact the way that you work in a positive way. Like, yeah, even I totally then, I agree. Think, like your background in journalism yeah, it helps you, like, you know, now in your career. Yeah, well, just like, you know, you're coming from the humanities and in some ways yeah. you're trying to, like, humanize tech or make it more approachable or make it more accessible, right? Not just, like, the fastest algorithm or, you know, the best deep learning model, but, like, something that works for all people and is, like, health, hopefully healthy for them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, I, I kind of, one of my probably biggest complaints about, like, engineers is sometimes I think... Their, their thought process is like, let me build a thing that's the most visually impressive, the most like impressive with like the code that I've done and everything like that. And they forget the user, like the person who's actually going to use this app. There have been so many times where like, I know of d developers on a certain team, like at a big company or whatever. And I know how they like talk about their the work that they do. And then I also know people like everyday people who use their app and like have no idea how to use it <laughs> because it's not intuitive. Right. Um, and like they probably wouldn't imagine that like anthropology having that kind of like user research kind of like mindset would have like helped so much in building stuff for people to actually use. So, yeah, I just think that whole thing is really interesting. Yeah, Maggie, I want to change tax for a second and talk a little bit about your current role. Can you tell us about a little bit about what it is you do? And I think we should probably say there is a connection, right? Like Joel Spolsky who was uh, the co-founder of Stack Overflow, now works at Hash, and that's where you also work. So tell folks a little about where you work, what it is you do, and, and sort of what that company is all about. Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, so I'm currently head of design um, at Hash, which, yes, we have a, a common co-founder. So Joel Spolsky founded Hash um, with David Wilkinson, um, who currently runs it as chairman as well. And we are, I'm trying to think of like our elevator pitch instant phrase, but essentially we are building <laughs> platforms that help people make better decisions. Uh, and that manifests in a number of ways. We worked on simulation software um, a lot previously. So there's like a 3D modeling software where you can put in a ton of data and it'll run simulations of possible outcomes for you, which is really neat. <laughs> We're currently working on a platform that is more around um, data integration and ontology. So that's like teams or even individuals being able to import data from all the various sources that you have data from, like Asana and GitHub, right? Snowflake, even the bigger databases, put it all into one system and then 
create what we call ontologies on top of it. So that's defining things like people, companies, you know, maybe PRs, whatever things that are concepts in the human world that we need to like tell the computer exist. It's a system to be able to create that and then to use that model data to then be able to run queries, to write up documents that have uh, dynamic data in them. So it's, it's kind of like an all-in-one decision-making workspace. <laughs> but one thing that we've been working on kind of related to that um, that we launched earlier this year is called the Block Protocol. And this is something that is complementary to our kind of like more, you know, our main product, but is an open source protocol that is currently in a draft spec. So it's not like a fully finalized released version, but it's a protocol that allows essentially components. So like, you know, React components, web components, anything that we consider sort of a singular block that does a single thing on the web allows it to talk to applications. So imagine like and a third party one, I should say. So any third party component can be embedded into any application as long as they both follow the protocol. And it allows them to do CRUD operations between the two. So uh, create, read, update, delete, um, the kind of standard uh, programming operations. So imagine like an iframe or an O-embed that has the ability to read, create, update, and delete data, obviously with the app permission, but it's trying to create a protocol that standardizes that for people. Mm, that's very interesting. Very interesting. So this is sort of like if there was this common language, then you know there's almost like an API relationship between all these elemental units that people are using for web design. And maybe in that way, things could be more interactive. I have this iframe and it's on a my website because I love basketball. Well, every morning it pulls like the top video from XYZ because it can speak to that other website or app or database. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the components, we call them blocks. Um, and it's very much framed around the idea of, have you guys seen block-based interfaces like Notion or WordPress Gutenberg yes. are kind of the, the really big popular ones? You're talking to a Notion fan and, and a WordPress user here, so we're, <laughs> we're all over it. Yes. Excellent. Good. Okay, you're on, you're on board. So uh, one of our goals is, you know, when you type slash or in, in WordPress, right, you have your picker list of blocks. And it's a kind of limited list of blocks, right? It's whatever the Notion engineers and the WordPress engineers have the bandwidth to build themselves. And there's all these other components available in NPM, right? If you search for React components on NPM, it's thousands and thousands. But you can't, as an end user, as someone who's not a programmer, you can't put one of those components into your blog post because you don't have the ability to, you don't know code. But what if we could have blocks that were interoperable between platforms like right. Notion or, or WordPress or any block-based application? Um, that's kind of what we're going for is we think the protocol will enable, especially with these block-based editors, users to have access to a, a much wider variety because independent third-party developers could build blocks and as long as these blocks follow the protocol and the um, websites or apps follow the protocol, the blocks can be embedded into the app without any developers having to like do the grunt work of right, pumping right. up data because okay. it has the I data the new, protocol written in. Here's the new elevator pitch. So we built a custom block yeah. that embeds at the bottom of every post that has the latest podcast. Siora could take that and put it in her Notion file, which she will... Don't you have this thing that turns yep. it into a web page now? So then you don't have to update I your do. personal web page anymore. You can just grab our custom Stack Overflow podcast yep. block and boom, it's it's there for you. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool. exactly, that's a good one. <laughs> um, that's yeah, really and cool. then I love that um, Notion's really interesting and in that the people are using it as a website builder because there's another kind of group of these like Glide or Retool or um, there's a few others where they're making it more like the whole point of it is to build a low-code, no-code website. 
And these building blocks are usually a large part of that. So I'm also really interested in it from the angle of like empowering non-developers to be able to publish more interesting, more interactive, more kind of rich, dynamic media to the web without needing to know HTML and JavaScript to do it. Right. Mm, right. I love that. I'm all for making that kind of stuff easier for everyone to do. Mm. That's really cool. This podcast is all about making your, your personal website better, Ciara. That's what we're all about here. <laughs> that is the goal. <laughs> that is the goal. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you worked as an illustrator, UX designer at Egghead, and then moved to Hash as a head of design. What has that transition been like? Yeah, I suppose the, so I was at Egghead for a fairly long time in, in tech sort of standard years, you know, where everyone <laughs> moves every six months. <laughs> um, so I was there for five years and I spent the first three years as more of an illustrator art director. And the last two years moved into more of a UX and product design role because I was just more interested mm. in that side of things. I kind of still love illustration, but I, I was so drawn to the to the kind of anthropology side of doing research and understanding of products, more like business and marketing kind of um, tactics. Um, so the jump to hash was a little bit of a change um, that I got to kind of step into that more in terms of like thinking about um, on a product level, you know, how you kind of like make <laughs> make design decisions that are very much influenced by market research and like um you know the overall company's goals rather than just being focused on like what color should the shadow on this drop down menu be uh you know you <laughs> yeah. kind of have to do both <laughs> and I had, I had done a quite a bit of hiring designers at my job at Egghead so that helped me a lot with maybe like more of the management and leadership side of things yeah um, and we're still s- small at hash but um hopefully we'll be growing um soon we're like currently going to be raising our series a uh, at the end of this year um, so I'll hopefully be hiring. So I don't feel too unprepared for that, but uh, it's definitely a role I'm expecting to like, you know, challenge me in many ways and get to grow into for sure. That's awesome. That's very cool. Very cool. What I wanted to hear is if you had any tips for like aspiring designers or designers who are trying to figure out like their style or who want to improve stuff like that. Any tips? Mm. I think you're a designer that a lot of people know of and admire. So I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in hearing if you have any tips for that kind of stuff. I suppose the big, the best thing I can pitch is um, the Nielsen Norman Group is a, is a website, NNG, I think it's NNG.com, is essentially like the Bible of all web design, UX design. Uh, they So the, it was founded by Don Norman, who wrote the book, The Design of Everyday Things, which a lot of people might have heard of as kind of like one of these original texts. It's founded by kind of like these two people who kind of invented the field of UX, and they do really wonderful original research and are constantly publishing sort of posts like, um, you know, exactly how to do modals and all the ways that we've looked at through user research, you know, how to do drop down menus with tons and tons of examples. I feel like you could pretty much educate yourself on like best in class design practices by just reading that entire website. Wow yeah cool okay awesome amazing what people give away for free on the internet these days all right everybody thanks for listening it is that time of the show i am going to shout out someone who was awarded a lifeboat badge on stack overflow they came on and found a question that had a score of negative three or less they gave that question an answer now their answer has a score of 20 or more and that question has a score of three or more Save from the dustbin of history, spreading knowledge in the community. Today, the award goes to Sten, who explains how to detect transparency in a PNG image. What's the most efficient code to achieve this? We've got an answer for you. Thanks for listening, everybody. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper, at least as long as Twitter is a thing that people use. Um, you can always email us <laughs> Stack Overflow 
uh, podcast at Stack Overflow. Uh, email us there and we'll shout you out on the show. And if you like what you heard, do leave us a rating and a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps. My name is Ciara Ford. I'm a developer advocate who doesn't belong anywhere as of right now. Hopefully that'll be changing soon. We'll see. Um, if you want to hear from more from me, you can check me out on Twitter. I spend the most time there online. My username there is Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. So I've been Maggie Appleton. Uh, I'm head of design at Hash. Uh, and you can tweet me at, at Mappleton. So that's M-A-P-P-L-E-T-O-N-S. Or at MaggieAppleton.com. I rant a lot about metaphors and interaction design on there. Awesome. And if people want to check out more about Hash or you know they heard you're hiring or they're interested, where should they go? Oh, hash.ai is our website. Uh, and if you're interested in the block protocol stuff, we have it at blockprotocol.com. Very cool. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon. Bye.